Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamara. Okay, this week we're closing out our series on producers. We don't have any more producers in the can for a little while, but we're closing it out with a doozy. We are talking to the fantastic producer, engineer, mixer, you name it, Tim Palmer. I love so much of Tim's work. Like a lot of the others, his career goes back to the 80s. It includes a lot of alternative rock. It includes more than that. And we talk about some of that, but it's a lot of alternative rock. Let me see if I can remember everybody we talk about in here. The House of Love, Tin Machine, Pearl Jam, Robert Plant, Tears for Fears. There's some U2. There's some Duran Duran. There's some Big Country. There's some Dead or Alive. There's uh, even some Ozzy in here. Of course, um, the Mighty Lemon Drops, who we had on again recently. Anyway, this conversation is so much fun, but we want to kick it off with this song right here, Tower of Strength. I hope everyone knows what this is. If you don't, I'm going to tell you. So, Tower of Strength originally was a big hit by by the band The Mission back in the 80s. And The Mission is fronted by Wayne Hussey. Wayne Hussey got together with Tim to put together a sort of all-star cast of alternative rock legends to redo Tower of Strength. This is kind of like a Band-Aid or We Are the World type thing. In fact, this song features a lot of former guests of ours. Miles Hunt's on here, uh, Lowell Tolhurst, J.P. Aston, but it's also got like Midjur and Gary Newman and Martin Gore and a million other people. In fact, I'm going I'm to get choked up just thinking about it. It is so beautiful and it's all for charity, all to put money back in the hands of the frontline workers who deserve it during the pandemic. So we kick it off hearing about this song right here and how Tim got involved. Folks, if you have not already, please go purchase this song. It is the right thing to do. Okay, let's give back to the people that are helping us during this crazy, crazy time. So anyway, Tim tells us about that, but then all kinds of other stuff. This conversation is an absolute blast. I have always loved Tim's work, and I'm so grateful that he talked to me. Um, He called me from his home in Austin. Okay, so let's start then with Tower of Strength, because this this remission project is so gorgeous. In fact, just talking about it right now, I can feel myself starting to choke back up. I can't watch the video without 
uh, getting emotional every time. That song has always been a favorite of mine, and it's one of those songs that you never wanted to end. The charging, gorgeous excitement of it is so infectious, you just, you never, it can't be long enough, that song. And to hear this revamped version for the uh, frontline workers uh, around COVID, for the charity and everything, it's a, it's a piece of art. It's a miracle. Tell me about how all this happened. Well, as you know, um, I've been very fortunate to work a lot with The Mission and Wayne. The one big song that they had that I wasn't involved with was Tower of Strength, because that was on the second album that they did with John Paul Jones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the opportunity to jump in and help Wayne with this uh, new recording, which was obviously going to be to help a lot of people that really need it because of the COVID situation. It was, mm. it was great for me because I finally get my hands on that song. Mm. And um, the guest list, or whatever you like to call it, of artists that were going to be contributing was phenomenal. And to be part of that list was enough for me. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Wayne and I work really well together. We, we, we started with God's Own Medicine. Then, as I said, unfortunately, I didn't do the second album, but I did Carved in Sand. And I also did um, an album with very recently as well. So I've worked on, uh, uh, on, on a lot of music with Wayne. And uh, this, was a, this was a challenge because, obviously, because of the situation that we're all in, and nobody's wandering into studios like on the Live Aid and singing yeah. together and all smiling together and shaking hands. This was all pieces that were sent individually. Uh -huh. uh, Wayne started the, the massive task of editing before he handed it over to me to take it to the next level. He had, you know, obviously most of the artists who are singing would sing most of the song and he would figure out which lines work best and then figure out how that would work with this guy and, you know, whether Martin mm -hmm. Gore worked better on this line or Gary Newman worked better on this line or mm -hmm. Kirk Brandon worked better, you know, so it was quite a challenge. But Wayne did an amazing job to get it all into a basic shape and then I had the job of making it sound like it made sense and uh, I loved it and I'm, I'm like yeah. you I mean it's a it's a, like a nine minute piece but I, I thoroughly enjoy trying to uh, you know guess who's coming in next uh, and who's playing yes. which solo and stuff like that it's, it's yeah. really good and I'm glad they made that video where they explain who's playing on it because uh, you know yeah, yeah you know, the one picture great. pops up <clears throat> I uh, yeah I had the same I had the same thought I loved it so did Wayne just I had, I saw that reference or uh, called the Gothic Band-Aid, which I was kind of a kind of a cool way of uh, of describing it. Did Wayne just go about calling all of his friends and asking everyone to do it, and then send it to you, or were you in the planning stages or the organizational stages from the beginning? He don't. He'd already started planning it, and then he asked me if I would help him, and I was happy to do so. And you yeah. know. Because of this, because of the situation that so many musicians are in, um, I was of course very happy to help. And okay. I've also been trying to help um, with the Recording Academy. We have a charitable wing called Music Cares. I'm sure you're aware of that. And Music Cares has been able to help a lot of musicians. And and towards the middle of the, or what might not be the middle when we look back at it, but um, when it was getting quite tough, the, the funds were almost out. So 
I was also at the same time as helping Wayne, I've been reaching out to a lot of friends in the industry to ask them to donate things. I got in contact with Robert mm. Plant from, from obviously from Led mm. Zeppelin and he got a guitar signed by himself and Tony Iommi. And I was able nice. to put that into an auction with, because everybody was trying to help and everybody was gathering. So there was a lot of people, wow. Wayne calling his friends to help with the Tower of Strength. I'm calling people who, you know, I spoke to Hans Zimmer. He gave me a, an original score of Gladiator that was wow. signed and also a guitar. Um, things like that and it, so everyone's been working and trying to do what they can because in from my perspective I would have no career if it wasn't for all the great musicians yeah. I've been lucky enough to work with so I've been very happy to do what I can yeah that's amazing and I want to deep I want to dive in a little deeper eventually on some of your other um, current responsibilities and your jobs and your your uh, charity work because there's a lot of fascinating stuff there um, yeah. anyway tell us about where the proceeds go each uh, each artist that contributed was able to choose the charity that they wanted their percentage oh, wow. of the money to go to, which was quite interesting. Um, so there were, you know, everything from the National Health Service to people like Music Cares. Um, yeah. Billy Duffy nominated Music Cares. I did basically because we're in America a lot of the time. So yeah. that's an important one to help musicians. But everybody was able to choose their own charity. So the money's being split off into uh, into a lot of different great causes. Good. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I'm so grateful you guys did it. I'm so grateful the song is good. It, uh, it, it's just, it's in keeping with the, uh, the legacy of how great the song was in the first place, that it sounds just as good, if not better now for a good cause. Um, yeah, have you heard okay. the, um, did you hear the, did you hear Trenta Muller's um, dancey remix of it? No. Oh, you <laughs> yeah, it's it's not dancey, it's atmospheric, but okay. he's, he's known for doing a lot of clubs to sort of style stuff, remixes and things. And uh, and it's just been, uh, the video's just been released today. Um, and it's 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 nothing like um, the other version because he's really put his own spin on it. And it, right. it's really cool. Really okay. cool. You've got to check okay. out Trent Muller's remix. I mean, obviously our one was staying true to the song. Sure. Um, with uh, with a new interpretation, but even so, as you said, it, it, it I, to me it, it's very successful. It works really yeah. well. It could have been a fucking disaster, to be no honest. Kidding. No uh, kidding. It could have sounded horrible, but but everyone did a great job, and the thing sounds pretty great. And I'm I'm very proud yeah. of it. Yeah, good. You should be. Okay, um, I want to start on some of the things I have here for you. And you worked on two uh, on two albums that are probably in my top twenty all time. And one of them I'm going to bring up now. The other one we'll save closer to the end. Uh, House of Love's Babe Rainbow is a top 20 favorite album of mine of all time. And you did a couple of things with them. Tell me what it was like working with the House of Love, specifically on Babe Rainbow. I'm curious what your, because, and, and I should preface this by saying, sometimes when I talk to people like you, I get a little confused because you sometimes you're the producer, sometimes you're the engineer, sometimes you're the mixer. So there's, and it's hard to know always, and there's various levels of involvement. Sometimes the guy doing the mixing isn't even in the room. Um, the producers obviously are. So if I ask something and there's not a lot of story there, forgive me. But anyway, tell me about Babe Rainbow. Well, Babe Rainbow, and as you said, working with the House of Love encompassed various of those um, occupations, okay. engineering, mixing, and producing. The first time I worked with the band was when I produced two songs for the album before that, I produced the single from that album called, um, what was it called, Shine On. 
In a garden in the house of love Sitting lonely on a plastic chair The sun is cruel when he hides away I need a sister I'll just stay A little girl, a little guy In a church or in a school Little Jesus, are you watching me? I'm so young in a garden in the house of love there's nothing real just a coat of bones and not the pleasure that I used to be So young, just 18. That's a great, great song. And it, uh, it was it was originally a single that they had on an indie label. And when they signed to Phonogram, uh, the a head of A&R, Dave Bates, asked me to re-record it, which is always challenging because a lot of fans are already in love with the way they heard it first, which is always it's a problem that will occur whenever you work with a band if they've already released something. I had to do the same thing with a band from Ireland called An Emotional Fish. They'd already had a, a big hit with a song called Celebrate and I had to re-record that and make a new version. But anyway, that was the situation I was in with Shine On and it, it came out great and it was, a, it was their biggest chart single. So that, that, that's, um, that's a result. But yeah, um, yeah it was interesting. They were, they were a really cool band. We worked at Rack Studios in London and um, as a producer, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, they were, um, I mean, I just loved the music they made. The other song we did was a song called Never. ABC, stick to me. Soul to soul, stay on eye to eye. Maybe God will be good to me. I've never sinned, maybe I should try. Never. Never gonna let you down Never, never gonna let you down Never gonna beg, I'm never gonna steal Your heart is perfect, my love is real Go to war, what a drag A love of hate is really not the way Light a flame or go to sleep. The time is right to celebrate or die. Never, never gonna let you down. Never, never gonna let you down. I'm never gonna beg, I'm never gonna steal. Your heart is perfect, my love is Because your heart will never lie, never cry, never sigh, never die. It's because your heart that keeps 
it was quite a lot of pressure on the band, I think, at the time, signing to a major. And uh, one funny story that you'll, you'll find interesting is that when we were recording Shine On, Terry, the guitar player, was really finding it very stressful, the whole experience, uh, Terry Bickers. And um, while we were recording the solo, he was just beating himself up about the solo all the mm -hmm. time. And I was trying to encourage him and say, it's great, Terry, it's great, mm -hmm. sounding great. And at one point he got to the end of the solo, he'd, he'd, he'd completed like 95% of the solo, but he just couldn't find the final phrase. Mm -hmm. So he sort of stormed out the studio and just left. And I was thinking, okay, so we've got a solo, but we've got one bar to fill at the end. So I just grabbed, grabbed the guitar and just played a little sort of final two or three notes and just dropped it in and never really? said anything about it. So, so the last three notes of that solo are actually me uh, improvising on what basically Terry did, which was a great solo, but he just couldn't, he just couldn't come up with the last bit. <laughs> That's outrageous. I didn't know you could even do that. Well, that well, so you know, funny. this was this was with tape machines back sure. in the old day with the stuff. But um Guy was great. He's actually his lyrics and he's a very deep sort of person lyrically, but he's actually a very fun guy to work with. And we we did all the vocals later at a at a separate studio for those two songs and oh. we had a lot of good times doing that. And uh, what happened with Babe Rainbow was the the label that they were signed to, I did a lot of work for that label. Uh, a lot of the artists I worked with around that time, The Mission, James, Big Country. This is Fontana. Texas, yeah, Tears yeah. for Fears. Yeah. This was because I had a very strong relationship going with that label and we had a lot of success mm -hmm. together. So when it came to mixing, I was often offered some amazing things to get to work on. And Babe Rainbow was most definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. um, they'd made the album with a producer who was actually one of my favorite producers called Warren Livesey who now lives in Canada. And Warren had done an incredible job with the recording. I mean, it was, it was a joy to mix. And, um, you know, I always sort of feel guilty when you get given something that's so well-crafted because the mixing is, is, isn't too challenging because it's actually great anyway. So I'm giving a lot of credit to the way that record sounds to Warren because he, he did it. And uh, I just was able to just put the last, you know, 10% on hopefully, okay. if, if, if you think that. But I, I did, like you, it's my favorite of the House of Love. Yeah. That album is, yeah. is, is amazing. I agree. I, uh, I just love every song and there's a moment I don't know if you'll even know what I'm talking about, but one of my favorite moments, you know, there's there's those moments in, in any song that we love that gives us the goosebumps or it's the moment of where there's some magic pixie dust or it's the part you want to listen to over and over. The first track on there, you don't understand. In the chorus, um, there's just the most incredible backing vocals by some woman. I meant to look at my the liner notes of my CD before we talked. I believe that you don't understand and the way that this yeah. female voice just barely hovers above the top, it, give, it just gives me chills every time I hear it. I love it so much.
you may have had something to do with that if you no, were mixing no. it. Well, I, I balanced it that way, but, but um, it was already recorded. I didn't record anything on that record. But oh. uh, yeah, I know the part you mean, and I love yes. that song too. Yes. Oh, man. That, oh, I'm just getting all chilly just talking about it. Um, okay, so going back to, let's talk about Wayne for a second, because did your relationship with Wayne go back to Dead or Alive's Sophisticated Boom Boom? Is that how you two became kind of familiar with each other? It was. It was. Okay. At that time, I was doing a lot of engineering uh, and mixing with a, a German producer called Zeus Beheld. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, he produced a band called Fashion from Birmingham. And uh, he was um, at the time dating Gina X, who had a, a big hit in Germany. And uh, mm -hmm. I became sort of um, Zeus's engineer for a period. And uh, we did a record with Dead or Alive, which was incredible for me. really unique album to make it was it was in the 80s so it was all about sequencing and Oberheim systems and stuff like that and Wayne was the guitar player yeah. and from the get-go Wayne was very different to the rest of the band he, 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 I got the feeling that his contributions were perfect for the music but he just didn't seem personal personality wise to fit in with Steve and, and uh, Pete although we all we all had a lot of fun uh, making the record that's for sure um, hmm. Pete uh, Pete had an extraordinarily powerful vocal. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, apparently, the legend is that when they would demo songs, Pete would literally be able to sing them um, first. So the first thing they would lay down was his voice, and then they would put the instrumentation around it afterwards. Um, that which never is quite, happens. I've never heard anyone <laughs> do that before. And when he would sing, I was, you know, a relatively young engineer anyway at that point. So I don't know whether maybe I could have done it a better way. But what I had trouble with was that when Pete would sing in his operatic powerful voice the the uh, the capsule on the microphones would just give in and it would just distort very badly so in the end I what I had to do is have I'd have a mic right in front of his face that he wanted to sing into because he needed it to be close but I'd have another mic hidden away that was actually <laughs> recording his voice so no sometimes way. if Pete sounds maybe a little more distant than he should it's because it was actually the other mic that was capturing his <laughs> <laughs> that's the best <laughs> but, but it's good but it, it, it worked it worked for us and, yeah. and um the other thing that was funny about that i always remember about that album was at the time everyone read the music papers you know it was all about the enemy and melody maker oh. and sounds and different artists would review the singles and one week 
uh, I can't remember which one, it might have been Record Mirror actually, they, Nick Hayward from Haircut 100 reviewed the singles and he had put a pretty scathing review of the new Dead or Alive single and he sort of got a little bit personal about Pete uh, oh. and what he felt and uh, he crossed the line let's say mm. and um, something to do with Pete's sexuality or whatever and he was just it was just a little bit mean and so when we were recording at Utopia I went out to use the bathroom and I saw Nick Haywood in the hall so I, I rushed back in <laughs> stirring it up as always I rushed back in and said Pete guess who's here he said who I said Nick Haywood's here. He said, right, Steve, come on, like that. And they all marched out. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? And uh, Nick Haywood was in the bathroom in one of the stalls. And the band stormed in and said, oi, you know. And, and Nick Haywood locked himself in the stall. And they got all the fire extinguishers and set them all off over the top of the stall and, and drenched him. And, oh. he came, he came, and as he left the bathroom, Pete said, never, ever speak to us like that ever again. And... He was shaking literally as he left, poor guy. And oh. uh, yeah, it was a big, it was a big deal at the studio there for five minutes, you know. <laughs> That's the best. Oh man! <laughs> but, but, poor Nick, it was a bit, it was a bit unfortunate for him. <laughs> That's great. Don't, I love don't mess with these guys from Liverpool if they're yeah, no Don't fuck with them, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I meant to, I meant to ask this about uh, working with House of Love too. Guy from House of Love and Pete, obviously from Dead or Alive, are very unique personalities. And I wanted to get a little, understand them a little bit better. For instance, with Guy, my understanding is that the band kind of came to a halt for a while there because he was such a perfectionist that he, it's uh, that he couldn't, you know, he was, it was analysis paralysis. He couldn't create or just write music. He was so stuck on making it perfect or fussing with it that it eventually just caused him to walk away for a while. Is Maybe. that true? Is that uh, the point well, you knew? It's not, it, it certainly wasn't like that at the point that, but I could see that happening. I mean, okay. he was no doubt, he was a tortured artist in that respect, you know, yeah. and they're always beating themselves up, but um, it never okay. happened on, it never happened on my watch. And, and the Babe Rainbow mixing um, was done in isolation in the sense that I worked with my engineer, Mark O'Donoghue, at um, Townhouse Studios, and the band didn't come down. I mixed huh. that record on basically on my own. Oh, uh, really? Huh. So okay. yeah, that was quite. That, but that happens occasionally. That definitely yeah. happens. And then, as far as Pete goes, he's another one. It's sad he's gone. You just feel like he must have been full of a lot of conflicting feelings and thoughts. Yeah, he was a very unusual. He was a very strong character. Um, it was funny because when you were setting up sounds and the track was starting to happen in the studio, you could sense Pete behind you. And every so often you'd feel a great big slap on the back, like really, really powerful slap on the back. <laughs> he sort of go, knocks the wind out of you and he says, sounding great, mate. Like, <laughs> in hell, Pete. He's frightened the life out of me. But he was, uh, he, he was really fun as well. But he, his obsession with changing the way he looked yeah. I think ultimately was his downfall. There was yeah. a time I went to, uh, I went, I was back in uh, London and I went out to some club, Brown's club, I think it was. And I was standing at the bar and there was this woman sitting next to me, big, big lady and she looked slightly Asian. And mm. she turned to me and said, Oh, Tim, 
and had this deep voice. And I looked again and it was Pete. Oh. And it was at that period, it was at that period where he'd really yeah. gone deep into his yeah. surgery. And I was yeah. really quite taken aback. Yes. It was uh, very strange, oh, but um, very sad too as well. It Something is. very sad about it. It is. It's sad whenever anybody just can't get find comfort in their own skin like that. Yeah. You know, that it's not enough. When he comes, one question I have for you about Pete, when he comes to the studio to sing and to record stuff, does he come in the full Pete regalia or does he oh, wear yeah. like t-shirt and jeans? No, no, he's, he was he was the whole the real That's deal every day. That's he had a wife, his wife um, was called Lynn, and Lynn, Lynn was the sweetest lady and she was probably tougher than pete right. and she was one of these wives that you know pete would be dressed in outrageous outfits and going out to some pretty you know heavy clubs in liverpool and some guy um the, the legend legendary story is that there was a, a sort of wrestler who was in a bar and started to take the piss out of pete and, and start mocking his you know his outfit and lynn went over and told this guy to shut the fuck up and this guy pushed Lynn, so she bit his ear off. <laughs> that's what that's what we were told, um, you know. <laughs> but I wouldn't put it past her. She was very yeah. protective of her husband. And uh, wow! But but to anyone else, she was so such a lovely lady, you know. Wow! I don't know that I realized he was married. That even adds another layer of strangeness to it all. Poor guy. Yeah. I, I wish they had. I wish he had figured it out. Um, Okay, let's go back to the beginning for a second and talk about Heat Wave. They are my third favorite R&B act of all time. I think everything they do is incredible. You worked on the current album. this from the rest of everything else on your resume this is the outlier working on this great early 80s r&b album from heatwave you must have what were you doing how did you participate in this uh, project? well i was on that album and it was very important to me this record because i got a job at a studio in london i was the runner and i moved up to being the assistant um, so I assisted on this record and I was told that Heatwave were coming into the studio to make another record. They'd made other albums at the same studio that I worked at, which was called Utopia Studios. Mm -hmm. And I was asked if I would assist and I was very happy to do so because like you, I, I was a fan. And um, 
the producer was Barry Blue, who's still making records to this day. Mm -hmm. And I see him, um, he was an artist and became a producer and a very successful one. And I'm still friends with him on, you know, the social media and stuff. Mm -hmm. So Barry was producing and the arranger was Rod Temperton. And Rod yeah. Temperton is, is a, a, a legend um, yes. as well because of all the work that he did as a writer mm -hmm. and an arranger with people like Donna Summer and Michael Jackson yeah. and Heatwave. Um, I mean, he, he wrote most of the Off the Wall album and he also wrote Thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when it came to um, assisting people of that caliber, when you ran the tape machine, you were in charge of pressing play and hitting record when they told you to do so. Mm -hmm. And, the, the, you know, there was an element of danger in recording sessions those days, a fear, mm -hmm. uh, which we don't have anymore now because everything can be undone. And yeah. you, you never really, as long as you back things up, you've never really ever lost anything. But back in those days, you had one two inch tape machine. And if you erased something, it was gone forever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, being able to work with Rod when he was building up harmony vocals and he would say, okay, I need to fix the third bar where he goes to the falsetto please Tim punch in and get catch that fix that and you know it was a big responsibility and he trusted me and that was that was just a wonderful opportunity for me to sit and watch these people make records this is how we yeah. learned back then yeah. we didn't yeah. go to recording school um, you know and if you were given the opportunity to be watching people like Barry or or Rod that was incredible incredible yeah, yeah. So um, I think yeah, Rod, that was, uh, was special. I don't know if Rod, Rod doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, for being one of the greatest songwriters, let alone R&B or disco or funk or whatever you want to call it, songwriters ever. Every great song that you can think of from that era passed through Rod Temperton's brain or hands or something. He was Absolutely. amazing. Yes. And he, the, the, the most interesting thing about Rod is you conjure up an image yes. uh, of him with the... Uh, with, especially with the artists that he worked with and even his name, mm -hmm. Rod Temperton, it, it gives yeah. you an image in your mind of what you think he looks like. And yeah. when this guy walked in to the studio and he was a northerner, right? I thought he was American for a start. And he's like, hey, oh, it's Rod. Nice to meet you, Tim. Nice. And he's got a cigarette going all the time. That's what and I heard. It, it's, like, it's, nothing, <laughs> it was nothing like how I imagined Rod Temperton to look like. A yeah. white guy from the north, a chain smoker, and he was just phenomenal. Yeah, that's so funny. I heard the same thing. Never without a cigarette, just constantly smoking everywhere. Another interesting small little anecdote. Yeah. Uh, during that session, the bass player um, was, um, was Derek Bramble, uh, oh, and yeah. uh, he was relatively new to Heatwave at the time, and phenomenal musician, and uh, it was great to work with Derek. And... Um, two people in that room ended up working with David Bowie later, myself and Derek, because Derek oh, produced right. the album. He produced Tonight, which was the album yeah. before Tin Machine, which is yeah. the albums that I worked with. So yeah. just, just an interesting, interesting. fact. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So you've, you've bridged the gap. Let's get into Tin Machine. I, um, I, I'm a gigantic Bowie fan, as you can tell from the Zoom wallpaper I have going on here. Um, what how did you get brought in to work on that first tin machine album what uh, tell us anything you can
Well, the Tin Machine album um, originally was not intended to be a Tin Machine album. It was the next David Bowie solo record. Mm. Um, it became it became Tin Machine once the project had evolved into being the sound and the personalities that they were. Um, I was brought in by um, David and Reeves Cabrels um, after they were looking around to find what they regarded as a young engineer who'd worked with a lot of guitar and alternative music. And at that time, I fitted that <laughs> quite nicely mm -hmm. because I'd worked mm -hmm. with, you know, I'd worked with um, The Mission, and I'd worked with The House of Love and, and mm -hmm. Gene Lost Jezebel and all these sort of, you know, James and yeah. things like that. So I was sort of doing a lot of that type of music. And uh, I'm told by Billy Duffy from The Cult that Billy also put a word in for me so that that that, uh, that that i'm grateful to billy for that too yeah. but anyway so the, I, I had a meeting with reeves and then i had a phone call with david which as you can imagine was oh. uh, quite a stressful time for me yeah. yeah um i've told the story too many times i think about how david said okay you know this is what we're trying to do are you interested and of course i'm interested mm -hmm. and it, you don't ask david bowie for demos first could i hear some demos before i commit to this i i was immediately in he asked me what my favorite bowie album that i've been listening to recently was and i told him i was really enjoying lodger and he said well that's going to be very appropriate so uh -oh. we were all thinking the same things at that time and he was listening to a lot of sonic youth and uh, the pixies and things like that and it was you know this is all pre the grunge era um so um he told me a date to come and start working with him and reeves in switzerland and that date sort of became branded into my brain on this day you will go and work with david bowie because of course he was a massive hero of mine yeah. So when the tickets arrived, I put, uh, looked at them, put them on the sideboard and didn't really read them properly. Mm. And what had happened was they changed the, <laughs> they changed the start date <laughs> by a day. Brute uh, brought it forward. So I'm sitting at home the day before I was due to fly to Switzerland and I get a call from the studio owner uh, at Mountain Studios and, and he's asking where the hell I am. And I said, no, no, I'm not here till tomorrow. And, he, and I ran over to look at the tickets and I actually... Oh. Hadn't read them, so oh, I had the task. Uh, I mean, I've, I've always prided myself on being at least punctual, <laughs> at the very least. And here I am having to call David Bowie up saying, "Sorry, um, I'm not going to be able to make the first day." Oh. oh, it was awful, and I was so nervous as it was anyway yes. about the whole yes. session. 
but he was living fairly close to the studio and he was so fine about it. So, all right, we'll set, we'll start setting a few things up and we'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. Oh. So, oh. so, um, yeah, wow. I turned up and started to work, uh, with, um, Reeves and David and, uh, you know, we did a preliminary preliminary sketches of how things were going to sound. And, and so the sales brothers weren't there at this time? They weren't there at the beginning. Okay. No, they were brought in a little later. And that's when the identity of the group really started to, to take off. Because um, Hunt and Tony being the rhythm section for Iggy Pop, they had a really very powerful presence in the room and a powerful sound. Yeah. And we also had... Um, Kevin come in, Kevin Armstrong came in to play mm -hmm. rhythm guitar and he'd played with so many great records um, from Thomas Dolby and all sorts yeah. of things. He plays all the time with Iggy Pop now. Yeah. But, um, you know, with Reeves' guitar as a guitar virtuoso and all the craziness that he can do and David's vocals, I mean, it was just an, an incredible room of talent and they didn't want to mess around. They didn't want to over they were sort of doing the opposite of what you were saying about guy they didn't want to yeah. overthink things the yeah. the 80s had a tendency to do that and david would like to have fun again he wanted to just you know really just get creative and a lot of that came from being able to perform in a live scenario so the studio was set up next to a um a casino so we set the band up in a circle and we had a small pa to boost hunt's drums even more and we were able to capture the band in the casino and I had microphones around the casino to capture the um, the real mm. reverb of the room because mm -hmm. it didn't need any artificial reverb because at the back it was you know pretty mm. vast sounding, and um, yeah it was a performance based record that first one, and uh, and it was flying by the seat of my pants I was because sometimes you wouldn't even get a run through you they'd yeah. finish the run through and they'd say that's the one. And then, so you know, the, I can hear, I can hear myself setting things up on the recording <laughs> and then that's the one, but, but it was a wonderful opportunity for me to be part of this yeah. and to sit and learn from, from all these great players and watch yeah. David Bowie making a record. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that I was able to be part of that. So the concept of it being a band that stands apart from David Bowie's normal, you know, solo catalog, that didn't come until later. Yeah, it didn't come till we were in, because we, we did the second part in, in the Bahamas at a studio called Compass Point. Mm -hmm. And um, David decided that he felt that maybe this was a band because everyone had such strong opinions and that he would like to call it Tin Machine and do it as a separate project. Huh. Uh, huh. And uh, my, my, uh, my heart sank a little moment there when I'd started a David Bowie record and no longer was I producing a David Bowie album. But right. in the interest of art, it seemed like a good idea. Um, I think ultimately it didn't help the success of the record. I mean, the record was pretty successful, but you know, I think it gets yeah. overlooked. I think it gets overlooked a lot of the time just because it wasn't a David Bowie record because yeah. there's nothing on the, those two records, the first two at least, that, that weren't you know, wouldn't have been out of place on The Lodger or, no. or, 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 or even, up, you know, maybe even up to Scary Monsters in a way. No. Um, uh, I think there's some really strong songwriting. I mean, some of it even appeared on some of his later solo work. No. I, can't, I Can't Read appeared on a later album.
Universal later as well, which yeah. was a killer version. But they were they, they were just, they were just great great songs, great performances. And uh, as I said, I was very very lucky, and I learned so much from that. I mean, can you imagine being the age I was and being in? No. I was in New York City in a mixing studio. I dreamed of being working yeah. in New York, so I, I made the dream to get to a studio in New York. And then I'm sitting next to David Bowie, and and then he says, "Oh, my mate's stopping by," and Iggy Pop pops in. Oh. And, and I'm sitting next to David Bowie and Niggy Pop, and then Brian Eno pops in to say hi, oh. and then and then Yoko comes in as well, and I and, I, and I'm looking around thinking, no, this isn't real, this is not happening to me. <laughs> this is just so it was just so great. It was great. Man, yeah, I would be the same way. He's my favorite, and I would just, just every story you're telling is kind of knocking me out. I so it, to get ready to talk to you. Kevin Armstrong has been on the podcast a couple of times and we've become a little friendly. And so I reached out to him and I said, I'm going to be talking with Tim Palmer tomorrow. What should I mention? And he told me to ask you, first of all, he says, hi. And secondly, he asked me to ask you about the time a weird fan accosted Bob Bowie one morning at Mountain Studios. I can't remember. I actually can't. I can't remember. Oh, really? Okay. I can't. I can't remember. You're gonna to have to go back to 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 Kevin and ask him. Okay. I don't yeah, remember. I, don't that. I do remember. I do remember making well because we had a lot of downtime and you know there was very little to do around the studio, and uh, we would make experimental videos like we would act. We would act out sort of strange. Reeves and 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 Kevin and I shared this little space, and we would make strange. Um, acts uh, uh plays and things like that to try and keep the time going and i've still got them kevin so just uh, be careful mate okay. okay so you don't remember a strange bowie fan coming in some morning in the studio and accosting no him. no i okay. don't okay the other thing he told me to mention was uh the secret gig in nasa oh yeah that was that was uh that was inc I, I actually have that on video Really? Ooh, um, yeah, I've got the video, and uh, and I have the uh, audio now as well. So at some point, the audio unfortunately was recorded from the mixing desk, and the video don't align. Um, but oh. at some point, I need to get somebody to slow the one thing down. I had to get some sort of software and be able oh. to put it together because it was uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Basically, they decided the band decided they would like to just get up and play a random show. Hmm. So we turned up in this. Um, it was sort of more of a bluesy type club, really. Um, but um, it was quite full. And the setup was a stage uh, with a little mixing desk on it where they were playing music. And they brought in a few amps and set up on this small stage. And the only place that I could mix the sound from was actually on the stage with them. So on the video, it's quite funny, really, because Kevin's on the left side, Reeves is on the right. I'm to the right of Reeves with a little mixing desk. David's in the middle. And... Uh, and, and Tony was on that sort of half left as such. And they just got up there and said, hello, we're Tin Machine. And people are like, hang on, I think that's David Bowie. <laughs> and they just launched into this sort of 
brutal attack yes. and these people that weren't expecting it and it was it was great and it sounds wow. pretty great as well and uh, the video is fantastic because i'm sort of rocking out on my little mixing desk trying to get it together and and you can see reeves and david next to me and it was just it was just really fun really fun wow so when you while you're working on like let's say you know you start working on tin machine 2 um you know what the you know i always i'm with you i always felt like the response the critical response was really unfair because the thing we loved about david was that he would try and do different things and here's another chapter of him doing something different and it, i mean never mind the fact that it was such an obvious precursor to grunge of course you saying what an influence sonic youth and the pixies were those two bands really predated grunge especially so it makes sense that um, that that's what was influencing him at the time. But when you go in to make Tin Machine 2... Are you, I don't know, are you feeling, a, not you personally, but is there a sense of having to prove it, prove yourselves? Like that was not a one-off flash in the pan thing. We really mean this. Or was it just as much fun as making the first album was? Were you responding to critics in any way? Was that in anyone's mind while you're doing it? The, the second album um, was very different in many ways. Um, okay. The first thing was that I, the first record I was hands on there the whole time. The mm. Second album, they'd already, they recorded most of the backing tracks in Australia on their tour. Mm. Mm. Uh, they took a break and worked down at 301 or 311, I forget the name of the studio in Sydney. And they did a lot of the recording and I came involved when we did overdubs and mixing. Um, we worked at Eel Pie and we worked at Ridge Farm, which is where I'd worked with The Mission and I'd also mm. worked uh, I mixed the Pearl Jam record at Ridge Farm, uh, which is in the countryside. So a lot of the time it was myself and Reeves um, doing guitars. I added some percussion and David came and did some vocals. Um, but some of the songs were actually a uh, couple of the songs on that album. I forget which ones now, but they were actually songs that were recorded for the first session because we recorded mm. about 27 songs. The songs from that first session that are still unreleased. I mean, they're out there, they're out there on the internet, yeah. you know, people can find them, but there's some really great tracks that didn't actually make. Huh. Um, there's a song called, um, if you research it, um, type in um, a song called It's Tough. I've got the blues, 
And It's Tough is a killer song, really? and that was never released. And it's a pretty good version. I think somebody's managed to get hold of the actual mix I did, because it, oh. like it sounds like a finished mix on the, on the YouTube video. But It's Tough is definitely a good one to check out. Okay. Um, and it's got some sax on it that David did. And, you know. but, but yeah, it was a whole different vibe, that second album. I don't know what the feelings were within the group, but I think there was, there was definitely a different dynamic than there was on the first record. Yeah. Um, and that's why, in a way, there's a lot of stuff on that album that I actually prefer. It's a little bit more produced, in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, things like You Belong in Rock and Roll, I think it's, 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 it's just a great track, you know. Just the twinkling light of heaven Two reflections on the sparkling water Hand in hand in love with love You belong in rock and roll. You belong in rock and roll. You belong in rock and roll. But so do I. Video's great, and I did a, a pretty cool extended mix of that as well. Oh, but, it, but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of good songs on there that once again I feel got overlooked. Yeah, yeah, okay, good to know. Um, now you mentioned Pearl Jam, I wanted to go there too. I think, I mean, that's probably the most successful album you've worked on, their debut album, 10. Um, how did you get brought in on that project? What was it like? What did you do? Tell us about it. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty handy, wasn't it? That one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got I um 
I, I'd actually work, I tell you how I got involved with that was I started to meet when I came to LA an A&R man called Michael Goldstone and he had signed a band called uh, Mother Love Bone. Yeah. Uh, so I was asked if I would mix the Mother Love Bone because Mother Love Bone uh, were obviously, they were into the sort of more alternative guitar scene in the UK and they'd made this album and they thought I'd be a good fit for it. And uh, I mixed, that was a strange one because they, I mixed that one once again, completely on my own. Mm -hmm. I hadn't met any of the band. I worked in LA at Soundcastle. I think while I was mixing it, um, Dave um, was mixing Jane's Addiction in the other room next to me. Um, so there were two great albums being made at the same time. But um, yeah, Mother Love Bone was, it sort of had elements of, of um, classic rock and alternative rock. And you could even hear sort of elements of the cult, the way he sounded a little bit like Ian Asprey at times, Andrew. Mm. But he had a hell of a personality and the lyrics were really fun too. And uh, anyway, we made this record and it was quite unique in its own way. Quite a strong record, actually. A lot of good songs on there. Yeah. And I had a lot of um, high hopes for that record. And then, of course, we all got the news that, unfortunately, Andrew Wood had died. Um, mm. He checked himself into rehab and made the classic error of coming out and thinking, I'll just have one last oh, yeah. hit. And whatever he took was a lot stronger than... He had thought, and sadly, that was that was his demise. So when, uh, yeah, when the band eventually, you know, realised that was it, they a lot of the players in the group wanted to form a new band, and that's how Pearl Jam came about. Because Jeff was in Mother Love Bone, and yeah. Stone was in was Stone in Mother Love Bone. I he think was, so. Yeah, yeah. I think it was just Jeff and Stone in Love, Mother Love Bone. Mm -hmm. So because I'd had that history with them and they liked that record, I was, you know, I was one of the people that they thought about immediately for their okay. new band, which was Pearl Jam, which was at that time was called Mookie Blaylock yeah. after their, their favorite um, basketball, basketball player. player. Yeah. And uh, they sent me some demos and uh, I thought it was great. I mean, it was very unusual. Eddie's voice was very unique. Uh, it was quite an unusual combination of styles because he had elements of classic rock with because Mike would play guitar solos which you know mm. weren't the you know accepted thing to do in a way of that that sort of alternative scene because his solos were really rock solos yeah. but at the same time Eddie's voice brought it into a certain area and his lyrics and then Stone has another element to it and uh, and rhythmically they were an alternative band so you had a really interesting um, combination of of genres in that that made Pearl Jam what they are so the idea was that you know, I would mix one song and if they liked it, I could do the record. So I mixed the song in A&M Studios in LA. And uh, I went for it with all the stuff that I was really into at the time, making things really deep and then bringing them really dry to the front. Mm. Sort of trickery that you can get away with when it's such a an organic performance because there was no not a lot of overdubs on it. So there was a lot of room to be creative at the mix stage. Mm. And uh, they liked it. And so that was great. And the only thing that bothered me was I didn't want to be in LA anymore at that time. Uh, um, my family, uh, I just had a, a little girl. Uh, my first daughter, Lauren, had just been born and I'd been away from home so much. I said, you know, I want to I want to mix this record in, in England and I'd like to mix it in the countryside uh, at a studio, a residential studio called Ridge Farm. And I was worried that they would say, well, we can't do that. But 
you know, this was still in the days, luckily, when record companies had decent budgets. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> they flew the whole band out to London. And um, they all stayed in this fabulous old recording studio. And, and they would go out into the fields and play tennis and, uh-huh. and, and left me in the barn mixing. And yeah. it was just, and we'd eat dinner together at night and we'd uh-huh. have breakfast together. And they were sleeping at the studio. I would drive home at night, which gave me a little bit of a separation to be able to listen to the mixes on my home system and then when i drove back in in the morning i could make my changes and then we'd all meet after breakfast and make any final changes so it was just a wonderful opportunity and there was no pressure the the great a lot of great records uh, have been made without pressure you know when you when there's expectation on -hmm. something then you get what you talked about earlier you get people second guessing every fucking move and as we know that, that that sort of stuff doesn't help and the most important thing about making records is that the songs are good, the performances mm-hmm. are good, and that you do a pre- pretty decent job with the mixes. Once, mm-hmm. you're in, once you've got a great performance and a great song, you're, uh, that's the best cure for a bad mix you've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, you, know, yeah. You, can, you can do what you want. Um, <laughs> okay. and, um, so, so, it, so I was in, in a great situation because I'm working on a record that was already great. It yeah. recorded in Seattle. Uh, I never got to meet the producer, and he's unfortunately died now. Rick Parashar produced mm-hmm. a, a great. They did it. I think they did it over like three weekends. Really, uh, oh, they were owed favors with each other. They're all musicians working in Seattle, and he said, "Look, I'll give you the weekends if I can be involved." And blah blah. And they yeah. And uh, they made this great record. And Dave Hillis, who um, would also be another good person for your podcast, Ooh, worked okay. Made. Dave Hillis recorded the record and he recorded with Alice in Chains and a lot of other great records in that period nice. in Seattle. But, um, yeah, so they sent me the tapes and, uh, we did it in about 10 days, no pressure. Wow. And the rest is history. Oh my gosh. I just, uh, talk about something that would never happen. Now the entire band needs to be flown to London, put up in a hotel while they wait for you to mix the album, just so that they can be there at the end of the day to hear what you've done. That would yeah. never happen now, you know? They'll, they'll email you the files, you'll work on them, you'll email them back out, you'll wait for replies, you know what I mean? I mean, I those know, were the, the budget, days, though. The budgets, yeah, well, it was like a different time. I mean, yeah. I, I've been really lucky that, I mean, I'm really grateful that I've been able to work, A, in the old school, which was when budgets were big, and I'm also grateful to be able to work in situations like now where I have my studio and I can take my time, and I've got my music, my instruments all around, and you know, this is the new way that we make records. I'm grateful that I've done both of those, and I'm also grateful I recorded analog, and then I recorded digital. But you're absolutely right, it was, I mean, when I mixed the first record for Sponge, remember the band Mm, Sponge? Yeah, absolutely. um, I, I was asked by the A&R guy, Pablo Matheson, if I'd be interested, and I said yes, and we all agreed everything, and, and this is the difference then. I lived in London, so they flew me with a first-class ticket to LA, they paid for that, then they had to ship my gear that I had at home, my speakers and some gear, so that was shipped to LA. Then we went to a really expensive studio called Record Plant, which was, you know, probably twelve, thirteen hundred a day. We did all the mixes at there. The band were flown in from um, Detroit. They were staying in a hotel. I was in a nice hotel. I had a rental car. Uh, my engineer was with me. I brought my own engineer with me as well. He had a, um, a room as well. So, you know, and then we had to do a lot of recalls because there was a lot of fiddling around. Uh-huh. And uh, tape was expensive. I mean, the whole mixing budget, people are making three or four albums for the same yeah. price that we spent oh. mixing right then. Oh, my um, gosh. 
and, uh, and and luckily for us with the technology we have we can do it we can yeah. actually do it you know yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to mention that uh, um, Sponge album because Plowed is on that album right yeah, yeah. such a great song and you mix that That's um, um, that's old uh, Howard um, from the radio. Uh, he, his favorite song of all time, I think. Ah, oh, I love that tune. Yeah, love it. Um, okay, let me see. Uh, let's. Uh, we're kind of bouncing around, I know, but I. Um, while we're in kind of a rock vein, let's talk about Robert Plant's Now and Zen album. I love that album. Because this, the songs are just so irresistible, Heaven Knows and Tall Cool One and Ship of Fools, those big hits. Tell me about working with Robert Plant. How did you even, what made him decide you were the guy for that job? Well, once again, oh, I must say just, just to point out that when I said Howard loved that Plowed, I was talking about Howard Stern. That's oh. always been his favorite oh. song. <laughs> he really? Always, I didn't know that. He's always, Howard Stern's always talking about Plowed by Spongebob. Uh -huh. his favorite song. I know, coming up. I know, it's so weird. That's great. Anyway, so going back to Robert Plant. Yeah, the Robert Plant was, well, Now and Zen was, uh, I worked on that album because I'd worked on the album previous to that, mm -hmm. uh, which was an album called Shaken and Stirred. Mm -hmm. So when he was making Shaken and Stirred, uh, he had his band and he was experimenting 
with a lot of new technology. So he was using sequences for the first time and uh, a lot more keyboards and stuff like that. So uh, he wanted to work with an engineer who was basically not the engineer like the sort of Glyn Johns who's made all the great Zeppelin albums or, or Andy Johns or any of those. He wanted a young kid who knows more about the synthy side of stuff and the sequencing. And because I was a child of the 80s, um, well, not a child of the 80s, but working and making records in the 80s, I was, that was what I did. And I yeah. made records, so many records I made that were, uh, you know, there wasn't actually a real drummer. Um, mm -hmm. So he liked that idea uh, of me being brought into his world. And he'd look for a, a sort of, you know, an engineer that, and I had a phone call with him and we got on great. And I wasn't even a big Led Zeppelin fan. That was what was strange um, because I was a punk rocker at school. And when I went to school, the, 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 the uncool kids like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. Um, it's ironic that I ended up working with members of both of those bands at some point in my career. But, um, you know, I, uh, I, so when I worked with Robert, we, you know, we didn't have too many reference points of Led Zeppelin to share. And uh, anyway, I was brought in to make this record. And to be honest, I was a little bit out of my depth. Mm. Uh, this was a big, this was a big setup. We had Richie Hayward from Little Feet, another band that at the time I had no idea who they were. I love Little Feet now, of course. Everybody um, does. So, yeah, so I had Richie Hayward playing drums. We had live guitars, bass. We had Robert singing. We had keyboards, and they were all playing at the same time. And they all wanted separate headphone balances. And it was in a studio I'd never worked in before, on a console I'd never worked before. And I was, in honesty, I was struggling a bit. Because yeah. um, I was used to doing things like Dead or Alive, where we plug things in, and uh -huh. uh, you know, and this was really testing me. And and to be honest, I was coming up a bit short. And uh, Robert was getting pissed off at one point, and he was saying, "Why is these things taking so long?" And he went up to the uh, owner of the studio and complained about the studio. Oh, and no. the guy who owned it said, "There's nothing wrong with my studio. It's like that young kid you got in there. He's out of his depth." And I was like. <laughs> That was, uh, luckily for me, Robert and I got on really well and he didn't, didn't take that guy's advice to get rid yeah. of me and he stuck with me. And there was another guy who was um, co-producing the record called Benji Lefebvre and Benji was a live sound engineer. And between myself and Benji, Benji helped me a lot and we made wow. it through and it, it came out great. I mean, yeah. the recording came out great. And as, as we progressed, I was able to show them some of the techniques about the keyboard stuff and yeah. uh, Robert had never seen anyone fly something in from a half inch moving stuff around which is something we did a lot in those days where you yeah. nowadays when people record music they can take a section and just paste it to another section of a song um, back then we couldn't do that but there was a way where you could put what the piece you wanted onto a separate machine and then move it to the next point I, I was able to show Robert that trick and he from that point onward he called me spinning Tim and he still, still does call me, he still does. I spoke to him about three weeks ago because as I said, he, he donated a beautiful guitar uh -huh. to, to help raise money for music care. So we're still in touch, but uh, yeah, Robert and I made, we made like three albums together. I, I, mixed, yeah. um, I mixed the Fate of Nations album. I produced two albums for him and yeah, it was great. And, and that's still, I think Now and Zenzi's biggest selling, biggest yeah. selling record that he did. It was a very challenging record because Robert's not a, an easy guy to work with. Mm. Um, Robert's one of these people who likes to push people's buttons to try and bring the best out of them. Oh, he really? riles them up and huh. it can work. It can work and it can also be very unsuccessful at times. Yeah. Um, but if he was, 
he would say things to me like, he'd say, he'd come in and listen to a mix that I'd been working on, and he'd say, uh, well, the bass is too quiet. And I'd say, oh, okay, no problem. I've just been concentrating on these guitars. Uh, let me just get the bass up. And he said, no, no, why is the bass too quiet? And I'd say, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, you know, he'd say, are we, are we not paying you enough money? Is there a problem? Uh, and I'd say, no, come oh, on, fuck off, like that. And he'd, like, he'd say, and he'd like try and want it. I go, fuck off, Robert. It's two seconds, come on. But he'd like, that was his uh, thing. Uh, he likes to just wind you up a bit. And, uh, <laughs> but he's, he's, just a, he's just a great bloke. And he's one of, yeah. the, one of the musicians that I've worked with that, you know, are rock gods who, he's never unavailable. If you've worked with him, you can email mm. him and he will respond and right. if he plays a show in town he will still and i haven't worked with robert for 28 years he'll write yeah. to me and say i'm playing a show would you like to come he's oh. just a super generous uh, incredibly creative guy who never rested on his laurels i mean just an wow. inspiration to yeah. so many you know? that is so good to hear yeah i think the magic of now and zen is that uh, the you know the shaken and stirred the principle of moments and those albums are clearly him trying to kind of break away from the Led Zeppelin sound and get into the synthesizers and the, and the electronic drums and all that kind of stuff. But I felt like Now and Zen was him kind of finally merging the two in a really great pop rock way, you know? There are yeah. the guitars, there are the, the drums and stuff, but there's also the synthesized sound of the era. And it's yeah, this well, perfect marriage. That album is great. He definitely, he was prepared to embrace the rock again, which... Yes. Uh, which it's very interesting because as a producer, you walk this line between being the artist's um, representative, supporting the artist the best that you possibly can to fulfill their dreams, if you can. And at the same time, in those days, particularly, you have a record label that are investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in an artist, and they see you as the guy that's going to deliver the goods. So as you can imagine, in working with Robert, you know, the label would potentially come down and be like, you're going to put some more guitars on this one, right? And because they want it to sound, they would love it to sound like Led Zeppelin. And of course, that's right. not what's going to happen. And right. Robert would be like, you know, I'm not interested in what they have to say. But sometimes I would sort of agree that we could need to be a bit more aggressive. So it was a very fine line to walk, you know, when you're trying to suggest to Robert that maybe that um, Jupiter 8 keyboard could be axed, you know, and we could try it on a guitar. Because you didn't want to think that you were, you know, speaking on behalf of the label, um, but you had to be speaking from your heart, and, uh, right. and and it was a good combination. It's still a little bit too eighties that record. There's no doubt. I cringe yeah, at some. Well. Of, I cringe at some of the sounds that could have been played on real instruments. Like "Tall Cool One" is such a great track.
but that piano and uh, there's the that should have been played on a real piano and been a bit looser but it's so tight and sequenced but but it is what it is and you, you know yeah. it's like i always say about you know when people look back too much and criticize what they did um you know you, you can look at a high school photograph but you can't photoshop your haircut yeah. that's what you had you know and uh, that's, that's what true. records are they're a product of the time yeah. and they're a product of yeah. a moment yeah absolutely and things change production styles you know it all just changes the 80s sound like the 80s because that's what was going on then and then the 90s broke all that up and some exactly. of us, our ears are attuned to that sound of the 80s and it's pleasurable to us. Yeah, that's you know? right. It's okay that's that right. it wasn't a real piano. I mean, from a current, a modern perspective, yeah, it would be nice to make some changes. But you were doing the best you could with what you had at that time. That's and the right. album is great. That's right. It's funny because like a lot of people talk about the Pearl Jam record and the way that sounded um, because the grunge scene was sort of just happening in Seattle. It hadn't broken out and it wasn't... You know, because remember, the Pearl Jam was, came out before Nirvana. Mm -hmm. So the sound of grunge wasn't a mainstream sound at that point. And I lived, in, I lived in Surrey in England. So, you know, I was not really trying to make Pearl Jam's 10 sound like a grunge record out of Seattle. I hadn't even been to Seattle. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that music changed from being hair metal over to Pearl Jam, Nirvana, that the big change that happened when all those bands unfortunately <laughs> were, were axed from radio and everything yeah. changed. I mean, it would, the Pearl Jam record in retrospect was a really nice stepping stone between the two things because mm -hmm. first of all, you know, in the 80s, we wanted records to sound big and, and grand and reverb was not something that was something we were afraid of. Mm -hmm. So on the Pearl Jam record, you know, if you listen to Black, I mean, the vocal has a lot of reverb and it has a lot of texture and stuff. And I wasn't afraid of that. been mixed you know five years later it would have had to have all been stripped back but i don't think the experience would have been as good but what was nice was that people listening to the radio when they heard that 10 album 
they got to hear a record that was new, but it also still sounded pretty good. And also Mike playing sort of rock guitar solos could keep them, they're enjoying it because they like guitar solos. So it's like they yeah. sort of stepped across. It was like a, a plank of wood between the two, yeah. between the two sounds. And then after that, everything went much more yeah. raw. And, uh, but I think it was, it, was a, it was a perfect switch between the two yeah. things there. I agree, and I think it. I think it's. In, I think it's indicative of bands who were looking for '70s influences versus '80s influences. You know, totally. everyone at that point was kind of doing what Steve Winwood or Phil Collins or or even Robert or Sting or whatever. You know, these old older rock stars who had been around for a while are gobbling up what the '80s is all about. And then you have a band, and I think I think they probably deserve a lot of credit for it. Honestly, that first Black Crows album comes along in like 89, 90, and it's, it has nothing to do with the 80s. It yeah. is completely the 70s. And the, yeah, totally. You know, and that is sort of awakening people to like, oh, this is, we can call on stuff that's, that goes back even further and make it modern and make it rock. And that's when grunge is starting to happen with the bands you mentioned, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and stuff like that. They weren't looking to 80s influences. They were going back further to the who and stuff like that and pulling that totally. yeah. absolutely i mean daddy was a big who fan yeah you know and he oh, was yeah. a big bowie fan of course as well i, yeah. I remember having conversations with eddie because he wanted to know about what it was like working with david on the tin machine and stuff yeah, like that I bet. funny 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 things about you know a lot of time when you listen to music we all listen to music thinking that things are exactly the way they were planned that was mm. how they wanted it and a lot of the time it's not necessarily that happy accidents happen, things, things happen. To, and uh, on the song Black, for instance, on the Pearl Jam album, which is a, a fan sort of favorite, the beginning had a guitar and I put the faders up and I thought, oh, that's a horrible guitar sound. Mm. It's dreadful. It sounds like it's trying to be like Keith Richards, but what an awful sound. And this was just my opinion. I'm sure the band wouldn't have agreed, but. But I said, I can't, I, I'm, uh, I'm going to have to do something here. So I thought, well, what should I do? So I thought, I oh, know, I'll make it sound like it's coming out of a radio. So uh -huh. I just destroyed it with EQ and made it sound small. And then once I put that in, I thought, okay, well, that's good. But then when Eddie comes in, he sounds too big now. He needs to be coming out of the radio. So the first few words, I made Eddie sound small as well. So his first vocals. Yeah. And then I got that right. And then when the bass kicked in, it has this full sound because it's, it's got the full-on bass frequency. So it's gone from small to... And then the drums come in and I'm like, it's genius. But you know, it wasn't born out of me sitting there going, I know what I'll do. That'll be really impressive. It was born out of me going, what the fuck am I going to do here? And then you go, Oh wow, that worked out really well. And you know, if, if people are honest enough, a lot of great moments in recording are out of examples like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I believe it. Um, okay, let's go back to maybe the most 80s of 80s things there has ever been. I want to talk about Kajagugu and uh, their first album, White Feathers. Well, that album was a very important album to me because that was when I was able to move up from being an assistant to mm. an engineer to a co-producer all within one album. So what happened was this. I was put on the session to work with this band that were coming in called Kajagugu and the engineer producer was Colin Thurston and the other co-producer was Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. Mm -hmm. So they were the guys in charge and I was running the tape machine and assisting and the runner at the studio um, was my best friend at the time, it was a guy called Chris Sheldon. 
and Chris and I shared a room um, just outside the studio, which made it really easy for us to get back and forth. We rented this um, basement flat. Anyway, so Chris and I were on this session and basically when we record through the day and Nick and Colin didn't like working late nights and we had a lot to get done. So by about seven, they were bored and wanted to go out to dinner with their prospective girlfriends. Mm -hmm. So they would piss off and say, oh, you can carry on um, recording, um, Tim will do it. And so I would literally move chair into the engineer's chair and be great, now I'm recording. And Chris, who was the runner, would move to run the tape machine and be my assistant. So we both sort of jumped into a new situation. So we would record through the night till late and then Colin and Nick would come in in the morning and make sure oh, they were happy. Right. So that went on and that was great, great experience for us. Um, we got to record with Lamal, who I later produced his first mm -hmm. solo record. And then at the end of the record, it was basically done. And the label in those days used to request B-sides. Now you remember B-sides. Mm -hmm. And most young people don't know what a B-side is, but the B-sides were the flip side of the A-side of a single. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they had to be done. And of course, Colin and Nick really didn't want to be bothered with the B-sides because right. they weren't getting paid on the B-sides. They get paid on the A-side anyway. Right. So um, Colin said, why don't you just do the B-sides with Tim and Chris? You know, And I said, uh -huh. I'm in like that. So... We were due to do the B-sides over a couple of weekends. And I said to the band, look, can I hear the songs up ahead so I can get some ideas? And they said, sure. So they gave me the demos. I wrote down a few ideas for things that I could do and uh, contributed um, musically to you know some ideas. And at the end of it, we mixed it and it was great. And I said to the manager, look, and it was a very hard thing for me to do, but you don't get anything in this world unless you ask. Mm -hmm. I said to him, look, I really feel like I've um, done a little bit more than engineering and these are only B-sides. So I would love it if I could get a co-production with you guys, if you guys agree. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously there were no royalties, but I just wanted the credit, you know? Sure. And they said, sure, no problem. So I co-produced these two B-sides and one of them was an instrumental song called Kajagoogoo. label thought the b-sides were fabulous and they put them on the record yes. so i'd started so i'd started the record as an assistant and ended up co-producing two songs on the album and the album went gold so yes. i got my first gold disc and uh, then that gave me the opportunity to say i'm a record producer and i've got a gold album and not only that um the other thing about it was that they i found this out like 
maybe a year ago, I didn't realize that Kajagugu, that piece of music that I produced, which was my first sort of production, um, was used as the introduction music for the 16 Candles movie. It was. I remember yeah. it well. I was going to say all this. So the, the Kajagugu theme song or whatever, yeah. I, yeah. I love that song. That is probably, that's my favorite of, of the songs on that album. I like that even more than Too Shy. And uh, I remember it so well from being the intro on 16 Candles. That's right. And, uh, yeah. I love that tune. And uh, it's interesting. I have like a like a deluxe version of the CD, CD of that album. So it's got the B-sides you worked on on it. Okay. And uh, yeah, I. that's so funny that that's the song that you worked on because that's the one yeah. that actually means the most. And the funny and the interesting thing about that shifting of chairs, you know, because back in those days, there was no recording school. So you got into a studio and you waited for opportunities. Yeah. You waited for somebody to turn up sick and then yeah. you stepped into the next chair at all. Right. And that was an opportunity for me on the Kajigoo to do that. And for Chris, who was the runner, he became an assistant. And then when I became an engineer, there was many records when Chris was my assistant at that studio. And then when I became a producer, Chris Sheldon um, was an engineer for me for a while. And of course, Chris now, um, you know his work because he's a very successful mixing engineer. He mm. mixed the first, he mixed the color and the shape for the Foo Fighters. Nice. Right? And yeah. uh, I mean, that's, that's just like one of the most, you know, artists yes. are always using that as their reference album. Yes. And uh, that was Chris. And Chris is, like I said, we're best mates. He's got a studio in London. We keep in touch. But that was how we both got, you know, we got the stepping yeah. stones to moving on. And another stepping stone at that time was like that was they, the, the, the bookings lady at the studio said, oh, Pete Smith, the engineer's kitchen's flooded. Can you step in on a session? And I said, sure, what is it? And she said, can you, can you manage it? I know you're an assistant, but can you engineer in that studio? I said, I can do it, I'll be fine. Uh -huh. yeah. What is it? Oh, Sting's recording. He's doing oh. some demos. So I did demos with Sting for just a day until Pete's kitchen was fixed. <laughs> and I got to record the demo for a song called Tea in the Sahara. Yeah. Uh, on the Synchronicity album. And, no uh, you know, opportunities like that, yeah. you just couldn't pay enough money to get those nowadays, right? <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's great. Um, one more question about Kajigugu. You know, Nick Beggs uh, doesn't get enough credit for being the amazing bass player musician that he is. And, um, and I'm sure it's because the band had a silly name and were a one hit wonder. And so they get undermined sure. constantly. What was he like to work with? Because he, he's, he's a special musician. And if you really are paying attention, you get, you know, that that's his reputation. But if you just think of Kajagugu, you're not exactly thinking they have a really fantastic bass player in their band. No, you know? no, well, it's true. But he was, he was, and still is a sensational player. Um, he, I think he has got the, the notoriety that he deserves now because he's played yeah. with so many other artists. You're right. um, he plays with um, Porcupine Tree, I think, sometimes yeah. with Stephen mm -hmm. Wilson. And I'm, I mixed a, a great yeah. album for Por Porcupine Tree at one point. But um, that's another story. But, but yeah, Nick, um, Nick, you know, even on that song Kajagugo, I mean, you can hear that he's a, a stunning player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he took over when they, the band fell out with Lamal and Lamal mm -hmm. went off. Nick <clears> took over and did all the vocals as well. So he's a very talented guy. And he was yeah. very young at that point as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's special. I, I like everything that band did. Um, okay. You mentioned Duran Duran. I wanted to ask you, I, I'm not exactly sure what all you did on the Thank You album that they made, but I, while you were working on it, were you aware that you were making one of the worst covers albums in history? 
Uh, well, <laughs> I'm sorry to be critical, but it's it's not good. It's not no, good. No, I know what you're saying, but um, I am happy to report that I was only very minimally involved in that. Okay. my big breast bed Lay, lady, lay Lay across my big breast bed Whatever colors you have in your mind I'll show them to you My big brass bed Stay lady, stay Stay with your man a while Until the break of day So I was brought in at the end to mix the cover of um, Lay Lady Lay Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So, so I'm only guilty of doing uh-huh. a mix. So please, <laughs> I, I get off with that one. But, uh, but it, it, it was funny because that was the first time that I'd seen Nick Rhodes mm-hmm. since, and it was many years later since Kajagugo. Yeah. And uh, it was quite funny to actually, mm-hmm. you know, be brought in to mix a song for Nick at, at Duran Duran after being his uh, assistant on the Kajagugo. Right. You know. right. Yeah, I love Duran Duran so much, uh, but they have a history of kind of shooting themselves in the foot. They do yeah. something great, and then they follow it up with something not so great. And then it takes them a little bit to come back, and then they do something great again, like they did with the wedding album. And then they return, they've finally got their juice back, and they return with thank you. And other than the White Lines cover, it's, uh, it's just not, it's not good. And, and they lose all the momentum they had just built up with their yeah. previous success, you know? It's amazing. I mean, that that track I'm just looking on Spotify, Lay Lady Delay's been played, you know, nearly three and a half million times, yeah, which, yeah. you know, that, that some people like it. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, well, it's a bulletproof song and it is good. I'm, th- I mean, you know, I'm thinking of things like their 911 is a joke. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's just true. not, uh, it just wasn't the right album for them to make at that time. And uh, right. it's unfortunate. Okay. Um, I've got three or four more. Are you okay? You yeah, of course. Okay? Carry on. Okay. Yep. This is so much fun, Tim. Um, okay, let's talk about Tears for Fears. They are a top 10 favorite band of all time of mine. Um, I don't believe you came into the picture until after Kurt left. And then Correct. you start working on Elemental and I think maybe even Raul and the Kings of Spain. Yes. Tell us about it. So, yes, um, I was asked um, by the head of the label if I would be interested in working the way he put it to me was with his biggest artist. And I was like, Oh, and it, it turned out to be tears for fears. And it, he didn't tell me straight away that Kurt was no longer in the band, but I obviously I found that out after talking to Roland, I had a long chat with Roland uh, about the possibility of doing a record together and coming after seeds of love. It was quite a daunting prospect because they'd made so many great records. Um, but we, we agreed to compare, because Roland's really into astronomy and he wanted to put our star charts on top so that he could see how we would work together because uh, he's into that stuff. 
so I thought, okay, well, whatever. So I gave him my date of birth and where I was born and the latitude and the whole thing. So we, uh, he put the charts together and called me back and he said, um, I think, uh, I think we'll work together really well. And I said, great, well, that's good then. And he said, and also I see, I see big success in this particular chapter, a little, you know, everything's broken up into these triangles around a circle. He said, there's a lot of success here and there's a lot of money here. And I was like, great, tell me something more. This yeah. is really good. So anyway, we didn't think anything about it. Now, what, <laughs> this is where it's funny. So at the same time, um, around that period, about two weeks before, I'd been asked by Pearl Jam, who were an unknown band from Seattle at this point still. Okay, uh-huh. That's the important thing. They right. were a, literally an unknown band from Seattle. They'd asked me to come and record two songs for the movie Singles. Remember that movie? Yeah. And uh, And, you know, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And then I get the phone call from Dave Bates from Phonogram to ask me to produce Tears for Fears. So what am I going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is awful. I'm going to, I'm going to turn down, let this band down from Seattle and go and make this record with this big artist. But as a career move, I have to do it. You know, I have to work with Tears for Fears. They're one of the biggest bands in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, rang Belgium up and the a man said they were very disappointed that you did that and basically I never worked with them ever again from that point um, um, but that was what happened and there's the funny bit so we start working with Roland and I loved working with Roland it was yeah. uh, it was just a wonderful experience for me and we worked in his studio in Bath um, and it took a long time he was the first musician of the caliber that he is to actually have faith in me as a musician. And that was really inspiring to me because he would, he would literally like um, come in at about 11 and I would arrive about 10 and I would try a few things. And I'd sort of say to him, Roland, I was sort of thinking about maybe this and expecting it to be rejected. And he'd be like, I I love that. Let's do that. And Mm. I actually got to contribute musically because there were only three of us. There were only three of us making that record. There was Roland's co-writer, who sadly no longer with us, Alan Griffiths. There was Mm. Alan, Roland, myself, and our engineer, Mark O'Donoghue. And we made that record in Roland's studio over about a six-month period, just completely on our Mm. own. And, and we, we didn't want anybody else to come in, really. No. We, we, just, we were just happy doing it ourselves. So I played a few bits of guitar. And, and one day we rented a drum kit and I played some drums that um, were edited, of course, because uh, I'm not no. that good a player. Uh, we ended up, my, my drums, I played drums on um, Goodnight Song. Yes. Um, I, played the, I played the loop that was breaking down again and all the fills. And, I was going to ask you about that.
And Roland was like the first person who actually, you know, and it gave me a lot of confidence to be able to finally say, hey, look, maybe this is an idea. Because when you're a producer and engineer, a lot of the time you feel like, you know, um, you know, you feel like you're going too far if you start suggesting things like that. The only other times that I'd done that were a couple of times maybe with The Mission and once with Mighty Lemon Drops. Dave talked about it uh-huh. when we did the song Shine. Um, but um, yeah, Roland gave me a lot of confidence and I'm very grateful to him for that. And we're still friends to this day. And I, I love that record. I think yes. it's some great songs on it. And it's funny because obviously it's not as successful as the other records. It still did really well, but yes. by, by comparison, it yeah. wasn't as successful. But, but musicians um, will always talk about Mr. Pessimist or the yeah. sounds on certain songs. And, you know, there's a lot of tracks on that album that are really favorites for, for musos. And yeah. it's a very respected album. Um, so I'm really proud to be part of that record. Yeah. And also Raul too. Raul was a, a whole other thing. That was more of a band record that we did in LA, but we had a lot of fun making those records. And I, uh, I, I later Kurt joined the band again and I mixed a, uh, an album called Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, which is a phenomenal record that really didn't get the, the, um, the press and the, um, just didn't get the push that it deserved because right, it's a right. great record. It's a great record. And, I, uh, have, yeah, uh, I have issues nothing, with that one. Well, it's too Beatlesy for you, I bet, right? Kind of, well, it's a, it's a great record, yes. But when your favorite band goes away for that long and they have, you've invested in them because of a particular sound that they make, and when they finally come back and they don't sound like what you wanted them to sound like when you first right. loved them, yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of, it's depressing. You have to move on, you know, you can't know. do the same thing. I know. I mean, that's like me. I, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to work with Dead or Alive and then work with a jazz artist and then work yeah. with a metal like Sepultura and then work with, you know, if you'd yeah. work with the same music all the time, you're going to get very bored. I know, I know, I know. I, and it, because yes, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending is a fantastic record for what it is. It just isn't the Tears for Fears album that I wanted at that time. But you've got to create room for artists to grow. You know, I uh, I think about someone like Howard Jones does this. I'm a, I'm a big Howard Jones fan and I, and I loved his early stuff. And then he puts out albums now that are like him on the piano and they're just different than what I really want from Howard Jones. But it's unfair of me to feel that way. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just not exactly what you want from your favorite artist. Sure. But anyway. The funny thing about the uh, going back to the star thing. So, so as we took so long to make uh-huh. that record, we start on day one, and I said to my engineer Mark, I said, "Oh, that's funny. Look at that. There's that. Uh, remember that band from Seattle I did, Pearl Jam? Yeah, it's at number 175 in the charts." And he went, "Oh, that's pretty good, man." And then we get to month one. I go, "Hey, you know that band that I did? It's at number 50 now, right?" And by the end of the six-month period, I was like. It's number two in the chart again. It's number two still and never made it to number one. And I always wondered whether that little triangle <laughs> that Roland saw, whether it was actually that one. And guess what? And what had I done? I'd fucked my chances of ever working with that band again. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> so yeah. guess what? So, so, so Pearl Jam go into the studio and they, and they um, brought in to record those songs for singles, Brendan O'Brien. Yeah. And um, of course, Brendan is a, a legend and yep. he did an, an incre- incredible job and they've, uh, and they've never not worked with him ever again. That's and right. That's, it. that's right. So it was fate, but it's unfortunate for you. So, <laughs> so funny. Um, okay. I don't regret. I don't regret it. I love. I. I really. 
uh, that was such a special record for me to be part of that yeah. Tears for Fears. But yeah, it's yeah. funny how you get these forks. You can go uh -huh. this way and you can go that way. You just don't know. Um, so like, for instance, when you were talking about Break It Down Again, you know, that song begins with that like soldier marching, mm. you know, drum sound. Was that you? Yeah, that was, uh, I got those from an old samples, a collection of samples I had, I put that on. And, uh, oh, so that was a sample, no one actually played that. No, no, the, sample, no the sample of the, the military was a sample, yeah. I'm saying. Okay. Saying and uh, the drum, yeah, the drum loop, I mean, I basically went out there and played for ages. Yeah. Roland found a loop that he liked, and we based the song, the majority of it, around a loop. And Roland's an expert at all that shit, so I just sit yeah. back and let him do his thing. <laughs> um, and then afterwards, we picked a few fills, uh -huh. Like into the pre-choruses and stuff, it's got the big and it goes in uh -huh. like that, and, and we just chop those into the places. And you know that was the way records were made in those days. Uh, you know, wow. you could move stuff around for, yeah. because we'd moved on from tape. It was done digitally, the album. But um, Roland had his sequencing stuff, and uh, yeah, I mean, with Goodnight okay. Song, I played that song quite a few times, and uh, I certainly wouldn't have sounded as good as I do if it hadn't been for his editing. That's for sure. Wow. Uh, I would never claim to be um, that good a drummer, but 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 it's it's amazing. It's it's I love them so much, and I even love those those post Kurt albums. So you worked on an al a song that they put out a couple years ago called "I Love You But I'm Lost."
Yeah. And that was both of them. What's the, where is that song going to go? I feel like well, they've been, they've been they've talking been about yeah, they've been recording, they recorded a bunch of songs. That's the only one that seemed to light today. I don't know. I never uh, know what's going to happen with them. Those two, yeah. you know, um, they got different managers and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I guess, yeah. I guess, t to be honest, I mean, this is what happens when, if you've written the songs like everyone wants to rule the world and shout and some of the biggest songs of the last 20, 30 years, I imagine that neither of them are, are desperate for, for, uh, for the, for the okay. cash. So, so they'll only, they'll only make something that they want to make yeah. uh, in the way that they want to make it. And yeah. I respect yeah. that if that's what they want to do, good luck yeah. to them, you know, but um, they, they're very fussy about what they want. I, I love sure. them, but I'm lost. Was, yeah. I enjoyed doing that. Um, Great song. It's a great song. I wasn't happy with the mastering on that, the way it sounded oh. on the record, but but that wasn't my. They did that themselves. It's just okay. very squashed, you know. But, huh. but interesting. Uh, everybody likes things different ways, I guess. Yeah. Do you um, do they still get along? I mean, maybe that's too personal of a question. I know for years they didn't, but um, I've seen them in concert four or five times since they reunited and came back together. Yeah. Was the when you did I Love You But I'm Lost, was the relationship okay? Was the chemistry okay? I, I couldn't actually answer that. I'll tell you why is because I mixed that here in my studio in Texas. I and okay. I would get notes from, from Kurt and notes from Roland, make the changes, and okay. I never really could gauge that. But I mean, I think it's fair to say that they're, they have a very much more grown up relationship mm -hmm. than they, yeah. you know, they were two school friends. So, yeah. you know, things have changed a lot since then. Yeah, true. Um, okay, let's talk about another big band, U2. The um, All That You Can't Leave Behind, I think, uh, hits its 20th anniversary right about now. Weeks. Yeah, it yeah. does. And there's a big deluxe box set coming out and stuff like that. Tell me yeah. how you got put on that project and what did yeah, you do? I was, think, I was thinking about that box set. I was thinking, I wonder whether they'll actually bother to send one to the people that spend fucking hours in the studio, right? I mean, you'd think somebody will hopefully go, oh, let's send one out to the guys that, you know, really put the hours in. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, right. the, um, it was a wonderful opportunity to, for me to work with you two. Uh, it came out of uh, what happened was, and I give my manager full credit for this, after the sad death of uh, Michael Hutchins, he made an, uh, there was an album put out of his last recordings. Yeah. And I was asked by Andy Gill, uh, who is also sadly no longer with us, mm -hmm. to work on a couple of mixes. And uh, my manager said to me, <laughs> he said, you know, get in there, do a great job. Bono's on one of the tracks. Bono will love it and you'll end up working on the new U2 record. And I was like, all oh, right, yeah, okay. It's that, e <laughs> it's that easy. So we worked on these two songs and they came out great. And uh, Slide Away. That's the, one with Bono. that's the one with yeah. Bono. So I worked yeah. on that one for a while.
the end of it, the, Andy said, Bono wants to speak to you. And I was like, okay. So I spoke to him and he said, I'm so happy with the record now. Um, oh. I, I really didn't like, I didn't like the way the song sounded at all. And you've really brought it out. And I'm very grateful. And um, you'll be hearing from me. And I was wow. like, that's incredible. Wow. So Sandy was right. And uh, I was asked to then mix a song for their million dollar hotel movie. I did a mm. song called The Ground Beneath Her Feet. I loved to uh, to mix. I love that song so much. Daniel Lamois' Pedal Steel is just so beautiful on that song. And then after that, they sent me three songs to start working on in LA, and those songs ended up um, being continued on. I went to Dublin. I was in Dublin for at least a month, mm. and we worked on Stuck in a Moment, and I did New York, and I did Elevation.
also did about three weeks work on beautiful day but i didn't finish it so okay. I, what happens with you too is they have so many people working on songs yeah. all the time yeah. and how it works is if you finish you leave what you've done and somebody else comes in mm -hmm. and then if you're the last man it's like <laughs> musical chairs if you're the last man on the chair you're the mixer right yeah so i mean i can't deny that there were some really cool things on elevation that I didn't create, they were created by the guy that was mixing it before me. Uh, but I was the last one to mix that song, so I mixed that, I mixed Stuck in a Moment, and I did a lot of, I added a lot of stuff to Stuck in a Moment, percussion and yeah. some voice things. I mean, sometimes mixing is a way more than mixing, um, yeah. especially nowadays. Uh, in those days, it was dangerous. You start adding stuff to people's recordings and they could get really pissed. Yeah. Uh, so it's always an element of danger. Uh, but you have to do what you think's right and you have to be prepared to say look I think this is better yeah. um, um, but um, nowadays people don't have the money and the time and the studios right. to be able to <laughs> take something and really develop it so as a mixing engineer now I find that I add to 75-80% of the stuff that I'm sent it might be doubling parts it might be adding percussion it might be fixing something and the bands are really grateful that you're prepared yeah. to go that far for them. And, and they're, they're grateful yeah. for that uh, yeah. because you're, you're mixing it as a producer and saying, Hey, this could be better. Sometimes I might replay something or whatever. And they're grateful for that. Um, yeah. You know, unless you're working for, I do a lot of work for a producer in LA called Larry Klein. who was mm. a Grammy producer of the year. Mm -hmm. He works more in the jazz sort of field, very organic producer. And when he sends me stuff, I don't dick with it because Larry knows what he's doing and he doesn't need me to start adding funny little guitars onto things. Right. right. Um, so I sort of right. mix in a much more organic style for him, but uh, I'm grateful that I can go into yeah. his world and now mix things. I've mixed Lang Lang and, yeah. and, and Candice Springs and albums, you know, we've done a lot of albums. Um, we did one which was a reimagining of Laura Nero and we did one about Ooh. Charlie Parker and we did one about Jacques Brel. So I've got to be involved in some music that's very cool. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm very grateful to Larry for, for letting me mix so much of his stuff. It's amazing all the different genres that have passed through your hands and, and you've put your spin on all of them to make them even better. When I, you probably heard when I, when uh, Dave and I did that deep dive of the Mighty Lemon Drops album, the thing that, kept was so striking to me was that it was perfectly produced because every each member of that band got to shine no one there wasn't no instrument was buried in the mix or too low or too high everyone sounds fantastic on that album
and that's I think because of you allowing everyone to shine on these on this on on what they're doing. Everybody yeah. sounded great. That's you great. know, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I mean, it's funny because as a as a producer, I mean, you're basically there to try and help an artist achieve what they have in their head, yeah. and. You know, there's a lot of egos involved in music producers and mixers and stuff. And there's a quote that Reeves Gabrell's told me about, and I've always lived by it, which is, you know, you're not the word, you're just merely a highlighter pen. And as a producer, that's what you have to realize that you're not the writer, you're not the artist, but you're helping them, you're highlighting, you're working to try and, 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 and I think it's true. You know, yeah, I believe yeah. that. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, I just have three or four more. One of them, uh, did you, so you mixed or worked on I Just Died in Your Arms from Cutting Crew? Yeah, yeah. Because, that was, a, that's insane, isn't it? <laughs> well, let me, t let me, because, so I've had Nick Van Eat on here twice, actually. He's so oh, yeah. charming. I love Nick. And, uh, and I spoke with, oh, there it is. Look at that. <laughs> there it is. Oh, he just pulled up the platinum album, by the way, uh, for listeners. But um, I also earlier this year spoke with Shelly Yakis. Oh yeah, who, who worked did, on that he, song as well. He did an American remix. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's what it. Okay, so what did you bring to the to the party on the "I Just Died"? Because that song, I've heard the stories. It goes through several iterations before it's got that swooping. You know, the begin, the intro yeah. that really announces it. There's a good 12-inch actually. You should check out my 12-inch mix okay. on that song. Okay. Yeah, what happened there was that was back in back in when I worked for a studio. And once again, this is a perfect example of opportunities that come your way that won't come your way anymore in the industry yeah. we have now. So I was asked by the studio booking lady, would you do the session in the remix room? It's some mixing. I said, absolutely. And studios were known. You go to a studio because they have great engineers. That was how it was. Yeah, mm -hmm. The idea of bringing your own guys came later. 
So I was just luckily part of that whole world. So they came to Utopia because it was a great studio and, and I happened to be their engineer. So I started working on these songs with Cutting Crew and one of them was Died In Your Arms and in true 80s style, we spent ages on it, as you can imagine, staying up late uh, and you know all the AMS reverbs and everything are all on there. And um, when you're in the hands, as I said before, when you're in the hands of a great song, you're in great shape and we did a pretty good balance of it and the song was like a huge hit around through europe and and england i think it got to number two or i don't think it made number one in england but it was you know and i got the credit as mixed by tim palmer and that was a very important record for me nice. when when america did they wanted america wanted to do their own as they always fucking do wanted to change it right so they uh so shelly of course who is a legend and uh -huh. someone i've met many times and I really uh, respect and admire. He did a version of it as well, and it doesn't sound that much different. But no. but it's what it is, you know, and it's okay. it's great. Great, such a great song. Um, one thing we try to touch on on here, sort of, is the business side of things, very sensitively. Um, you've worked on so many great things. Are you? I don't know. Like when you get your, I'm assuming when you get your mailbox money, that Pearl Jam is the biggest hunk yeah. on that check, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Is it enough to, I mean, do you collectively with all the things you've done and everything, are you able to lead a comfortable life even to this day? Or were some of those things, you know, paychecks that have long been spent? Well, obviously now Pearl Jam's 20 years old. They're, they're not, it's not the same as it was, but you're absolutely right that it is still the best royalty check I received. There's no doubt about it. Um, I get a decent one from Aussie. Um, and I also co-wrote co um, about four songs on that Ozzy Osbourne album as well, so that's good. the other things some of the records like you know tears for fears the elemental mm -hmm. i still you know get a, a decent check for that and and i did a band called texas yeah um, in the uk so that they're yeah. pretty good um you know i couldn't I, I certainly couldn't retire and live off my royalties if that's okay. the question that's for sure mm -hmm. i need to work every okay. day and and i think that's a good thing because uh, mm -hmm. it keeps you active and it keeps you and i still love what i do um, yeah. but but i can't deny that where now the music industry has gone downhill and the fees have gone downhill mm -hmm. um 
that having those royalties come through to support me and help with the rest is yeah. very important. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Okay. I mean, you know, I got, I, uh, you know, like so many people, I, I was um, married. I'm on my second marriage. My first marriage was definitely the downhill part of it was definitely not helped by the fact I was never there. Um, I was always working uh, and you know, it just didn't work out. And I have two daughters from my first marriage, Lauren and Caitlin, and I'm remarried now. And I have two daughters with my second marriage with Veronica. I have Daisy and Bluebell. So I've still got a Bluebell is only 13. So mm. I've got to get her through school and college yet. Daisy's just about to go to college. So I, I you know, I can't, I can't retire. <laughs> what are you saying? Yeah, I could I probably could have done if I hadn't got divorced and had to give half of it away, I'd be in much better shape. But, um, yeah. but in honesty, you know, as I said, I, you know, you have to think the positive side of everything yeah. and, you know, it, it, it hasn't made me lazy and it's, and it's kept me, you know, fighting for every gig yeah. and, and, uh, and moving to Texas was definitely spawned by the fact that, you know, I needed to be in a place where I could get a decent sized studio and look after my family. Well, <clears throat> LA was very expensive and coming to Texas has been a wonderful move to me to be in Austin. There's so much music here. I've got involved in so much more here than I was getting involved in in LA. I'm, um, a trustee texas trustee for the recording academy which is yeah. a wonderful honor for me as a brit a te british texan mm -hmm. and i'm also part of a another non-profit here called black fret i'm on the advisory mm -hmm. board and we raise money for artists uh, in the form of grants every year and we, we've given a, a way over a million and a half now to austin nice. so being involved in these non-profits and stuff it's just wonderful and it's, yeah. it's a nice way as I've got older in the business to be able to give back something and at the same time still working all the time with new music, old music. And it's, it's great. I'm very great. Very grateful. Good. Good for you. I, um, I was lucky enough. My wife won somehow two tickets for us to go to South by Southwest. And this was 14 years ago because she was pregnant with our oldest daughter and right. um, they put us up, they flew us out, put us up in a hotel. We got VIP passes for two days. And we could see any show we wanted. And so we saw like, yeah, five or six concerts a day or whatever, those two days. It was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. I loved it. It's great. I wish I could go back. Yeah. It was great. It was 14 years ago, you say? Yes. So yeah. you've got, it's, got, it's gone. And fortunately, it's got busier and busier yeah, and, I know. And, more, and more corporate. I went to one of the really early ones and that was just insanely good. Yeah. Um, but um, nowadays, even if you have a VIP pass, you turn up and you probably won't get in to see the show, which is ridiculous because yeah. yeah. the passes cost such a lot of money. But I, I support South by Southwest and I do mentoring sessions mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And it's, it's great. Yeah, it's yeah. really great. I remember two of the bands that were getting the most buzz that year were Wolf Mother and Arctic Monkeys. Oh, and everybody right. was trying to get into the Arctic Mon Monkeys show. And we right. tried and we couldn't get in. But um, okay. Okay, let's talk about the new Psychedelic Furs album. Surprised when every second has its place. Don't be surprised at all. Don't be surprised when all your days are yesterdays. Don't be surprised at all when the new black is white and the
it is so good to have them back. They, I don't know why they were gone for so long. Maybe you can give us some insight on that. I do think they're probably one of those bands like, um, well, I was going to say Echo and the Bunnymen, but Echo and the Bunnymen have put out lots of albums over the last 20 years. Maybe they just felt like like uh, Tears for Fears, that there was no need. They could, you know, tour comfortably on their old hits and make plenty of money, and that was enough. But it was it's so nice to have them back. How did you get involved? Well, it's funny, yeah, because I was talking to Richard about that, and, you know, for many years he was like, why? Why make another yeah. album? And then eventually he turned the corner, and it was like, why not? Why yeah. not make another album? But he had very high standards of what he wanted to achieve, and he wasn't prepared to just put anything out. And he'd already formed another band, Love Spit Love, at yep. the end of, you know. So also my involvement, great band. Yeah, my, my involvement came via this. It's quite strange, really. But basically, um, uh, when I worked with The Mission, uh, Richard Fortis, who is the guitar player next to Slash in Guns N' Roses, Richard Fortis was a, a big Mission fan. And in fact, you can see Richard at the Guns N' Roses often wearing the, the Mission logo on his T-shirt. Right. Yeah. So one day on my Facebook, um, he commented on something and I thought, oh, that's, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> I must say hello to Richard. And my wife is a huge Guns N' Roses fan. So she said, write back to him. You might be able to help us get some good tickets. So I said, well, okay, okay. Let me just talk to Richard first. And then and anyway, um, I became friends with Richard via social media and then we met and, and had dinner together and stuff. And he said to me, look, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm making a record with uh, my friends the psychedelic first because he was in the band mm -hmm. and he was in yep. love spit love yep. so he said i'm trying to make a record with them and i've been it's been going on a while but we'd love you to mix it uh, but you you know you know you need to meet richard first obviously so um fortis put in a good word for me into the band and uh, when the first came and played austin last i went down and i met uh, richard butler and the funny thing is that we both grew up in the same area of london oh, in wow. uh, we, we almost went to the same school. I mean, it was like the next school along. Uh, so we, we know all the same places. So we had lots to talk about. And uh, also one of the first gigs I went to when I was about 18 was the Psychedelic First. So no I've known about that band for years. So it was wonderful for me because I had yeah. all those early albums with India yeah. and all, all that stuff. So yeah, the opportunity came up. I got the files from Richard and I went about doing my thing here mm -hmm. and thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah. uh, the record came out fantastic this, and the reviews have been phenomenal yeah. and it's probably got the Guinness Book of Records longest gap between two top 20 albums I reckon uh, it's like 20 is it 29 years or 26 I think it is yeah I think it is I think it's 29 let's see uh, when, World Outside or was that the last one and I think that was 92 91 92 yeah so yeah we're looking at 28 29 years it's amazing but um yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's just a great all-round good record, good songs, good performances, great production from Richard Fortis, and the mixing yeah. is pretty good too. It is, <laughs> of course, it is. So, under normal normal circumstances, if we weren't all on lockdown, do you think? Well, maybe they will anyway. Do you think that there's going to be more Furs music? I mean, they this was so welcomely received. They have to feel encouraged that people care about new Furs music. You know, I hope so. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah, me too. I hope so too. I love them. Um, okay, another band that was that you worked on is Big Country, the Buffalo Skinners album. No, nearly. Oh, really? I thought you did the no. Buffalo Skinners album. No, I think the Buffalo Skinners album, I think, um, if we look, was done by 
my mate Chris Sheldon, the guy who did the Foo Fighters, who has been oh, my mates. We went to we went yeah. to school together. I think Chris did the Buffalo Skinners album. What did um, you do? I did. I only did uh, two or three songs with them, um, and they ended up all ended up on that album that was the greatest hits compilation. Yeah. You know they had. I did, and I think I did two two singles. I did a song called Heart of the World. song called save me and those save me are with, yours okay. yeah that, those two are on the uh, on yes. the greatest hits album and that album is basically nearly all of uh, steve lillywhite's big hits with them yeah. and then a couple of songs that i did with them so oh. it was it was great to be part of that um and uh, they were all the skids who were the band that Rick, mm -hmm. um, richard jobson and Stuart adamson were in before big country the skids were one of my favorite bands when i was a kid mm -hmm. so the idea of working with um, Stuart and, um, and Big Country was just a dream come true. And, you know, as soon as I got there, I'm like, how'd you play that one then again? And he was sitting there with guitars. And, and he was the, the loveliest guy that you yeah. could ever meet. They, well, they all were. Tony Butler's a wonderful guy. They all were lovely guys to work with. We had so much fun. Um, we'd all made a few records. We all knew what we were doing. We knew we wanted to have fun when we did it. And it was great. Um, the only unoriginal member in the band was... Mark Brzecki, the drummer, was not in the band that I uh, recorded, it. which was a shame because I love Mark Brzecki's drums. Me too. But, Me too. but the, the guy that they had was great too, so it was, okay. it was all fine. But but um, yeah, it was uh, it was such such a shock to me what happened to yeah. Stuart, and I mean he was just a hero to me that guy. I mean yeah. when we were together in the studio, apart from being you know one of my childhood heroes in bands. He was just such a, a great guy to spend time with. Really? He seemed like everything was totally together. He had a family. He loved his wife so much. He loved his football. He loved his music. He was not a stressed out guy. He was always in a, just a great mood. And, you know, he wasn't drinking at that point. And uh, apparently things started to go downhill and he had a, a yeah. bad thing happen within his relationship. And I just couldn't believe it. I was so oh. gutted um, because those those two or three weeks I spent with him and the band were just wonderful. I'll never yeah. forget them. Yeah. I had Mark Brzecki on here a few years ago. I'm a huge big country fan and I uh, he says kind of similar things. In fact, most people that I've had on the show that have 
and have been able to talk about Big Country with, it mostly came as a shock to just about all of them. I mean, yeah. they all seem to say sort of what you did, which is that he had seemed to have everything together, this perfect life. Yeah. Then suddenly right. things started to go bad family-wise or drinking and whatever. Yeah. They go bad for a lot of people. And eventually, I guess he just couldn't find his way out of it. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. And it's such, I mean, the guy who writes things like In a Big Country and Fields of Fire, that guy can't make it work. It is so sad. You it's know? funny you say, it's funny you say, you know, couldn't make it out of it i mean that when bono wrote stuck in a moment about michael hutchins yeah you're stuck in a moment that you can't get out of it i mean that's basically saying what you said i mean it's yes. the same thing people get yes. caught up in this thing and they just can't break it they just cannot do it no and uh wow i mean yeah it's so sad. i uh my production partner that i do this podcast with he lives in dunfermline scotland oh really and so yeah and so was, i went that out that was team isn't it Yes. And so a couple of years ago, I flew out there and um, spent the weekend and we went and saw Balmoral or the whatever the name of his yeah, uh, castle right. was and the house he grew up in and his stuff in like the local museum. And interesting side note that also uh, ties back to you. I flew out there to see a concert and it was El uh, Alice Cooper with the tubes opening up. It was at the Hydro there in Glasgow. And what I found out when I was in line for the show was that in the middle was going to be the mission. Yeah, and I had right. never I had never seen the mission in concert. And I didn't know they were on the bill until I was in line to get, and I'd flown all the way out. And so great. it was one of the best concert experiences of my life because oh, I loved great. the mission so much and had never seen them, never had a chance. And here they were the special surprise. On that's top great. Of them. You know what I mean? They, yeah, that was just after the uh, Another Fall from Grace album had come out. Yeah, That's the one that we did about five years ago or whatever. And um, Wayne came over to Texas. It was the first time we'd seen each other for years. Wow. I mean, when we made those early mission albums, um, you know, we were young fellas, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, now we're coming together. And it was just it was just the best yeah. three or four days I've had in ages. I believe and it. we talked about old times. And we made, I think that Another Fall From Grace is a fucking rocking record. Yes. <laughs> and the fans yes. loved it. They loved yes. it. And I'll never forget when they come out on stage and they... Ta they they start with Tower of Strength, and it goes on for probably ten minutes or more. And when it finally kicks in with the big you know rock and guitar solos and the drums and everything, oh my gosh, I'm getting goosebumps again just thinking about it. Such a cool thing. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. I mean, we're you know you've been so gracious with your time, and uh, this means so much to me, Tim. It, you if you can't tell, and this is you know I just cherry pick like the top things. There's a there's 20 other things we could talk about. So much of what you've done means the world to me. Thank you for everything that you've done and put out in this world. You're but I am, I am curious, what is your favorite story to tell? Is there something, you know, what, what's your favorite thing? When you look back or you're in your studio there in Austin and you're just like, what a life I've had. You would never guess. What is that thing? Well, that's a hard one because there's been so many... Um funny stories a lot that i can't repeat and, of course uh, a lot that i can but i mean there's been just so many inspiring moments um yeah. of watching artists perform one one art one thing that i'll always remember is that there was a song on the tin machine album called amlapura mm -hmm. um and david went out to sing it and uh, he did a fantastic vocal performance as he always fucking did i mean mm -hmm. it was how do you critique someone like him you know okay. um 
so he did this great performance and he said he came in and had a listen and he said okay I'll, i'm gonna go and do it again and i stopped him and said can i can i be as bold as to ask you um why, why are you going to do it again what what do you not like about it and he mm -hmm. said well i think because of the lyric he said i think it should be sadder i think mm -hmm. the song should be sadder and i said okay that, that makes a lot of sense and and how when you go out and sing it how will you make a vocal sadder yeah. what are you going to do and he said i'm going to sing the vocal just slightly flatter just slightly to give it oh. a, a melancholy tone and he went out there and he sung this vocal again and he just dropped his pitch just a tiny bit that made the whole thing just feel a bit more melancholy. And I was just yeah. blown away. Oh, blown away. Oh. Isn't that fascinating that he I mean, knows what to do in that? Oh situation. yeah. And you don't get many fucking, can you imagine somebody nowadays doing no. that? No, <laughs> no, no. I guess, I guess maybe nowadays you could just auto tune it just slightly flatter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. But in this, the artist knew what to do. That is fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, thank you, Tim. You mean so much to me. Thank you for everything. I'm sorry it took me so long to get back it's to you. Okay and, with uh, me, man. I it really enjoy okay I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you, Tim. All right, there you have it, Tim Palmer. I love so much of his work, and he is such a good guy. I hope you guys heard a ton of music in here that you love, and I hope you go seek out all of his stuff. By the way, how great is it to have the Psychedelic Furs back? And the fact that he produced that album, so good. I wanted to close it out with that song that he was just talking about with Tim, with Tin Machine and uh, David Bowie, Am Lapura. This is off the second Tin Machine album. This is what it sounds like when David Bowie says, okay, I'll sing differently. This is it. So, so cool. By the way, folks, I have to tell you, after in between the time I talked to Tim and now, I have also talked to Wayne Hussey of The Mission. So that interview will be coming up probably uh, end of January, beginning of February. So look out for that. I'm a huge Mission fan. That is, that's a big deal to me. <laughs> a big deal to me. Anyway, thanks again, Tim, for doing this with me. Next week, I am not entirely sure what I'm going to do. In fact, you guys tell me. Here's the deal. I could either go with an interview that I've been holding on to for a while, something that's been sitting around for a while that I really like and haven't had a chance to put out, or I could put out an interview with somebody who's got some new material that they're kind of promoting as well that people might want to buy for Christmas. So you tell me, should I go with the really good ones that's been sitting around for a while, or should I go with one of the really good ones that features something you might buy someone for Christmas? You tell me. I don't know. I can't decide. Okay? Anyway. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. By the way, I hope you guys enjoyed our Christmas podcaster panel bonus episode that came out the other day. That was a lot of fun. I just really wanted to spend some time with my friends, and uh, I shared the conversation with all of you. You guys know what to do. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you so much.